Welcome everybody to the Resilient Podcast. My name is Neil Tan and I'm your host. Today we've got a fantastic guest, Greg Van, who's the founder and CEO of Endowis. Welcome, Greg, to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming in, man. I know you, uh, you know, Hong Kong's favorite son has returned. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's a nice way to put it. That's a nice way it's to put it. It's good to be back in Hong yeah, Kong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you know, yeah, we'll go through a little bit mm-hmm. of that and you can tell us that story. So what, maybe just kind of a quick introduction about yourself and also, you know, the Endowist platform. Let's start sure, there. sure. So... Um, my name is Greg. Yeah. I actually grew up in Hong Kong. Right. Um, went to boarding school and college in the U.S. before okay. getting my first job in Singapore. Right. So in Singapore, and this is all kind of related to the genesis of Endowis as well, I started my career, like a lot of people out of college, at an investment bank. So I was mm. at UBS covering uh, financial sponsors. So oh, a lot okay. of the right. private equity venture capital funds. Right. And... Um, among many things, it was there that I realized that we were investing, like personally mm. investing extremely differently from the way institutions right. invest. Right. Okay. And meanwhile, I mean, this was like, you know, I had day, gone through that day trading saga, the very speculative era uh, before the global financial crisis thinking that I was a genius and getting wiped out and all that stuff. Right, so right, right. I knew I, I kind of, was getting to understand the difference between investing and speculating. Sure. Uh, but it was actually the experience at UBS and interacting with a lot of institutional investors that this became much clearer. Mm. Okay. But we'll, we'll get back to that. Investment banking to me was always a bit too 10,000 meters in the air. Right. I wanted to always get something, do something much closer to the ground, build something with my hands and hopefully creativity and, hopefully right. add value in that way. Um, and actually, one of our clients told me to just join a, a company and get some operating experience. Mm. And it's even better if that company is moving really fast. Right. And uh, a third star if that company is decently funded. Right. You, you okay. can't move too fast. <laughs> you don't have money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, so not, right. not running out of money, but in a, in a sort of a hyper growth mode. Sure. And it was then that I joined Grab yep. um, in oh, the early cool. days. Very cool. Probably not, I wasn't in the super, super early days. Um, we, we were already in six countries at that time, mm. but we were taxi only and oh. cash only. Right. So cash if you remember, only. So cash no only, payments, is, like none of no, that. No payments as well. Right. Um, and taxi only. So that's a very different business from actually private cars right. to food to payments and, and everything else. And from 2015 to 2017, I got to help build some of those new businesses, right. um, including payments. Yes. So people, people would say that I was on the pioneer team of Grab Pay, um, unlocking over 100 payment, sort of 100 payment uh, methods across the region for drivers, wow. for merchants, and for passengers. Again, I, I think it was just timing. I, I don't think it was because, I mean, it was, it was really lucky to get that experience. But that was my first foray into FinTech. Right, got it. Without even doing it on purpose. I mean, FinTech at that time, it wasn't really a, anything people talked about. Right. It was even hard to get 
passengers in Singapore right. to start going cashless right. on the Grab app. If right, you can imagine right. that. <laughs> now, if, if like you accidentally press cash, yeah. you're like, oh, crap, right? So, because <laughs> so, um, obviously, like you don't carry cash around. Right. In Hong Kong, taxis, yeah, we all know everyone in Hong Kong yes. got to carry cash. Still. A lot of other places um, have gone really cashless. Right. So uh, Grab gave me that exposure of the ability for technology to scale an experience yeah. to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people. Sure. But it also showed me how painful it is to build technology. Right. But the beauty of technology is that it compounds on itself, right? So once you build it, you build on top of it, mm. much like you're building the foundations of a building. Right. And sometimes you need to gut the foundation in order to build higher. Right. And building technology is not too different, mm. right? It's, it's very different from like a one-on-one -on -one conversation that is not totally scalable, yeah. unless obviously it's being recorded and shown to a lot of people at scale. <laughs> right, right. But you, you get what I mean, yeah. right? So being efficient with time and money was always really important to me. Mm -hmm. And that brought me back to my experience of first speculating you know, in college, before college, losing money and not understanding why, getting to understand how markets work, interacting with these institutional investors while at UBS. And that was a fantastic experience for someone in their early 20s. Oh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's absolutely. experience that you, you probably wouldn't get until much, much later. Um, having sort of that intellectual conversation, reading up on it, becoming kind of a, a, becoming kind of a, a person that people came to naturally for personal investing right. uh, tips. Right. And then being like, I could use technology to scale this massively. So that everyone can have access to the same. Yeah, right. advice. So right. we say, we call it evidence-based advice, yeah. institutional quality access, right. and low, fair, transparent cost, mm. all the while being conveniently delivered. Right. Right. And what the, the real sort of straw that broke the camel's back was when starting to look into this, the way the system works for individual investors. And you could be served by a, a retail bank branch, online banking, an online platform, a zero cost broker. You could be served Supposedly. by- Supposedly. Yeah, exactly, a private, <laughs> exactly, a private that's, bank. That's and, the whole point. And, 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 or, or whoever it is in the industry. If you look closely enough, there are so many inherent conflicts right. involved. And um, the most shocking to me, because I was always on the institutional side of the business, the most shocking to me was that when I was buying a mutual fund right. as an individual, you know how you might see a fact sheet and there are different fees, retail share class, special share class, institutional share class, you know, restricted share, all these different things. Right. Same exact fund. I didn't realize that a huge amount of commissions were embedded mm. in the fee mm. that retail investors were paying. Right. And, and in the documents, or when you look at that fact sheet, it just says, oh, if you invest under this amount, you pay the retail share class. So you're like, oh, they're so nice. They're making this fund available to me mm. at a high, slightly higher fee, fine but because I'm retail, but that's not actually the reason. Mm. It's because baked into that management fee that you're paying 
is a huge uh, is a huge distribution fee, right? Which the industry calls a trailer commission or a retrocession or whatever right. it is, that basically gets passed from the fund manager or the product provider back to the distributor, mm. and that again could be the zero fee platform, right? Which is obviously earning their zero fee because they're earning commissions, right? Um, you know, in the zero brokerage world, it's like payment for order flow, so right. to speak. Yep. Um, different in, in fund management, but essentially the same idea, which mm. people are, are really pissed off about as well. Uh, and obviously, if you're a distributor, you're more likely to recommend or sell funds that you potentially may. pay you higher commission. <laughs> I mean, maybe, <laughs> and, and that may lead to right. not only unsuitable advice, but massive negative selection bias mm. as well. So when I started looking into this, I was like, no way. Like you're telling me the entire industry works this way. Right. This is crazy. Yeah. And after doing a bit of digging, um, along with co-founders, we were like, okay, this is a big enough problem right. that we have to solve it. Right. And in Dallas is now, you know, we start, this is in 2017 when we sort of had this epiphany. Right. Um, in Dallas is now the largest probably um, conflict-free wealth management platform and fund distributor in, in Asia. Is that right? Um, wow. Singapore right. being, you know, our hub. Because you guys are somewhere around, what, 5 billion AUM or... Yeah, that's right. Way, or, or more. I mean, it's probably on a yeah. very strong growth trajectory, right? I, so. I think it takes time and people are starting to learn about why you want to go conflict-free, mm. why actually from a total cost perspective, it's cheaper, right? especially for the asset allocator. Yep. And um, so we, we, don't, we don't actually, unlike probably a lot of your guests, we, we have no tradable securities right. on our platform. We right. only deal in funds mm. and that can be everything from money market to fixed income to equities. Very TradFi stuff. Yes. So people call people call in Dallas very TradFi. Uh, lots of licenses, lots of compliance. Right. Um, okay. uh, so yeah, all the way through to um, hedge funds, private equity, private credit, right, infrastructure, right. and and so on and so forth. There's a lot of developments happening there as well, which which are really opening up possibilities for the individual investor. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you guys have uh, have been on like a. a uh, terror in terms of growth and AUM and so forth. I mean, you uh, maybe talk a little bit about your presence in Singapore. I know we're here in Hong Kong, but mm. I mean, it, it, that's really where you kind of set up and established yourself, right? As far as track. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, back in 2017, beyond the conflict-free angle that we thought was something we could work on for the rest of our lives. Right. You know, in the same way that, you know, Jack Bogle sort of pioneered the index fund movement and knew that that was something he could drive for the rest of his life. I think that wealth management is going through a similar process where transparency and doing what's right for the client should and will ultimately win. Mm. And I'm not saying in Dallas has to be that entire pie. Mm. I actually want the rest of the industry to participate Right. Because that pie can be massive. And for, for wealth hubs like Singapore and Hong Kong, it's a huge opportunity mm. if we get this right and attract um, capital from, from all over the world to be managed in these proper business models. Mm. So I, I think it's very, very early on there. Um, but beyond that in Singapore, we also became the first digital advisor for CPF, 
which is the Central Provident Fund, right. um, equivalent kind of to MPF in Hong Kong, right, right. where people could allocate their CPF into portfolios designed for their you know, risk tolerance and needs, mm. or just pick funds on the Endowers platform um, very, very seamlessly right. and at low cost. Um, among many things in the CPF space, we were the first to also bring in uh, index funds mm. to CPF. And, right. and incredibly, okay. for those of you who are you know, indexers, we, we love index funds. I mean, we have a lot of different types of funds on the Endowas platform. Um, index funds uh, on Endowas in Singapore start from 0.05% TER. Wow. Right. Right. And that was bringing down the average equity fund price from like 1.7% plus. Yeah, right. So it's a huge win for the individual investor and, and possible because we partner with the fund management industry. Sure. Because we are not trying to reinvent the wheel. You're not going up against the, the, the fund the, managers. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're just, we're, we're trying to, right. we're trying to entice them to bring their best products over at the lowest cost. Mm because we think they're best for the end client. Right. And because we're paid by our end client, we only have incentive to serve our end client. Right. So this is how we align incentives uh, properly. Right. And finally, I mean, circling back to that entire thing, the reason why we're called Endowus is to bring endowment investing to all of us. Mm. So we're very early in this mission, and if you think about how an endowment invests, let's say Yale Endowment, for example, Yes, they are multi-asset class. So people think of Yale Endowment, they're like, oh, they did really well because they had a huge allocation to really great hedge funds mm. um, and private equity venture capital for a long time. But actually, the secret sauce for Yale was that they were extremely liabilities driven mm. and had a lot of rigor in manager selection. Right. So liabilities driven means Yale knew and could map out when they needed to renovate the library, when they needed to support these scholarships, this research project, and they had a cash flow projection of the future. Mm. And based on those objectives, they could create portfolios that were suitable for the duration, liquidity, and expected returns of those objectives. Right. Right. And that objective would be six months from now, three years from now, right. 30 years from now, 300 years from now. Right. And depending on that duration, you can map back to your actual goals. What sort of investments you need to make, what sort of returns you need to target Correct. returns. Or, or, or what type of volatility you can actually tolerate. Right, right. right. And, and it's through that process. And then, and then from that framework, selecting managers to help you achieve that goal. Right. You're not selecting managers to maximize returns. Sure. Because if you select managers to maximize returns, you're going to be taking maximum risk. Yeah. Too. They're looking at the next, you know, tomorrow, actually. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah exactly. So you're, you're, selecting, you're selecting managers to maximize the, uh, the ability to achieve those goals. Right. Right. And that, I mean, there's no reason why you and I can't do the same for our own money. Mm. Right. Like, why is it that when I sit around with friends... They're trying to punt on stocks. Yeah. Right? Right. They're not trying to compound their wealth right. towards their next down payment 
or their child's education right. or whatever it is. It's just like a highly speculative mindset. So that's their only, that's their disposable income. The other stuff is that probably planned in some treasury bills or something yeah, like that. Which is also, yeah, which is also right. not, not necessarily correct, right? right? Cause you're not going to benefit from the power of compounding sure. when actually you've satisfied, you satisfied your shorter term goals right. and you can plan towards longer term goals. Mm. And people often say like, Oh, Greg, how much am I meant to have in private equity? Should I just copy Yale? Right. And, and that's not the answer, mm -hmm. right? Because you may realize that you can have even more allocation or you should have zero allocation, right. depending on what your actual life goals are. Right. So I think the Endowist platform makes that possible very transparently and conveniently at a low and fair cost. Right. Yeah. And so when you look at this, I mean, you know, by and large, the majority of the, uh, the clients that you serve are inside of this goals-based investing, or are they risk-based? Are they theme-based? I mean, do you get a lot of these different types of profiles of clients? And so we do, and I think what's important is we provide a framework for them. Yeah. So we have a set of clients who come in and just want to buy a specific fund Mm -hmm. because they know that fund, they like that fund, but right. it's cheapest on Endowis. Right, right, okay. right. So that's, pick your own fund. Let's call it the, that type of client. Right. And we have 80 fund managers on the platform. We've curated about 300 strategies wow. that are best in class across, you know, all asset classes, active, passive, quant, yep. uh, long, short, uh, platform, multi-strat hedge funds like Millennium, Point72, et cetera are all available on um, the Endowist platform. Uh, and then private equity, private credit from, from the big boys, like you know, you know, Carlisle, Partners Group, KKR, right. um, et cetera, uh, are all available on the platform. So some people, they come on, they're like, I want that fund, I'm buying that fund. They can self-serve, do it themselves, pick your own fund and go. Right. They, they treat it like a low cost fund platform. Right. But what's really important is that we are conflict free. Sure. So we're still doing all the research and work and, and the funds are only on the platform if they pass through our manager and strategy selection process. Mm. Okay. So let's pick your own fund. A lot of these guys actually graduate to, I have this objective. What is the right collection of funds right. for me to achieve that objective? So I can be properly manager, strategy, sector, geography, diversified right. to achieve that goal. And that could be, again, across um, the risk spectrum. And then a lot of our clients actually, and this is surprising in Hong Kong, in Hong Kong in particular, a lot of our clients want to engage us more one-on-one. -on -one. Is that right? Okay. And, and we, we actually accept meetings yep. in our office or at their office or at a coffee shop. Right. And we have licensed advisors that go out and meet with those clients. Wow. Okay. We've been running this in Singapore for many years, but what's, what's kind of surprising to us is the the disproportionate number of clients in Hong Kong that want to engage with a human advisor is far higher. Is far higher than we experience in Singapore. Right, right. Uh, in Singapore, I think it's, it's picking up now. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of clients who have uh, millions on the platform right. of, of their savings. And at, at that stage, I understand they're, they're a bit more, you know, I want to meet somebody. But we, we actually will take a meeting or a call with, with anybody who wants to use the platform. Like it doesn't, like $10,000. They could, they could not yet be a client. Right. And okay. they could be like, I just want to learn more about in Dallas. 
schedule a 15 minute call yep. and, and go and, and a human advisor will, will pick up that call wow. with them. Okay. Right. And um, yeah, the, the, the entry points are, are easy. We started, we actually started off with a, with a hundred thousand dollar minimum. Okay. Um, so a hundred thousand Singapore dollars. So right. let's say 70,000 US yeah. dollar minimum. Okay. Uh, we lowered that to 10,000. Right. After we built up the team, you know, the operations, we thought the systems could handle the, the volumes. We lowered that to 10,000 and then um, back in 2020, back in 2021, we lowered that to 1,000. Wow. So, we've so the been, cost of serve has significantly, I mean, you've been able to reduce that significantly then, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we also understand that clients start maybe with, you know, one, two, three thousand, mm. but they can grow, they grow tremendously on the platform. Right. Our, our cohorts, as people experience using the platform, understanding its value add, and I think this is really important. I think, yeah. I think as a platform, we need to, as a service provider, we need to tell our clients exactly how much they're paying us, right? how much we're earning from them. Complete we're, transparency. Because we're not, right. we're not earning anything from anyone but them. Right. Right. We're not earning commission dollars from right. fund managers. That's right. Any commission dollars we do get, we pass back to the client. Yep. So on the Endowed platform, I can in three clicks look up exactly how much Endowus has earned from me in fees since the inception of my relationship with Endowus. Interesting. It's almost like it's almost like too much transparency. Right. But to be honest, right, if the client is not comfortable with the amount they've paid us mm -hmm. or with our service, right. they should fire us. Yeah. They should move somewhere else. Yeah. Hiding that from them is disrespectful, mm. in my view. Right. So, I mean, that's always been our approach. We think more transparency than less. Right. Um, clients understanding the value we provide right. is critically important to a respectful relationship. Right. With the client. And yeah. you guys have, um, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe kind of switching gears as well. I mean, you know, you've established yourself inside of Singapore, coming into Hong Kong. Uh, you initially kind of uh, set up an office and kind of organically, and then now inorganically, you also acquired a company, right? Maybe yeah. talk a little bit about your acquisition process here. Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we hold, as a group, we hold two licenses in Hong Kong, um, one for our multifamily office which is an existing business called Carey Private. Yep. Um, it's actually run by uh, good friends, great long-term industry veterans, uh, Kenny Ho and Samuel Chi, and, um, and a lot of the founding Julius Bear Asia team. Okay, okay. founding members. Of the Julius Bear Asia yeah, team. Right. So when, when Julius Bear was zero in Asia, these guys were entrepreneurial enough within the private banking world sure. to set up that Julius Bear brand right. and branch in Hong Kong and Singapore. Right. So, um, you know, we have a lot to learn from them as yeah. well. They've been operating and serving high net worth families and institutions for a very long time. But we have a view, a longer term view on independent wealth management, mm -hmm. not because we're looking into a crystal ball and we can tell the future, right. but because we've seen more developed markets move in that direction. That's right. Okay. So Australia, the UK, Switzerland, mm. the US, 
the RIA movement, Canada, the Netherlands, Sweden, they all have huge independent wealth management, so non-bank wealth management um, businesses. Sure. And we think that Asia's not too far behind. Yep. I mean, I talk to, um, you know, family, friends in my parents' generation, and they're like, yeah, you know, I started off with one private bank. Um, you know, maybe they own a factory somewhere. They've been running a family business, like a lot of people in Hong Kong. Uh, I started off with one private bank, and then I had two, and yep. then I had three, and after a decade, I had five private banks. Yeah. And they're all telling me different things. Yep. I don't have time or an understanding of how to compare these things. That's right. So could I have an independent advisor help me distill all of this? Right. And potentially get me better pricing with the banks as well. Yep. Like what is good pricing? Yeah. Right. I, I don't actually know. So uh, this is a natural evolution of where the wealth management services industry is going to go right. in Asia, um, following in the footsteps of pretty much every market before it. Right. Right. There's nothing, uh, <laughs> there's nothing sort of, you know, there, there's no like we're creating a completely new white space kind mm. of a bet here. Right. Yeah. So the basically driving more to facilitate the um, or provide guidance advisory services to those individuals mm -hmm. that have those five <laughs> PB bankers yeah. that are like knocking on your door. You're like, I don't even know if this is right investment strategy or I don't know what the fee structure is. What's yeah. the transparency inside of that? So you're just kind of helping them to navigate mm. even those PB who are supposed to actually do what, you know, you're arguably doing as well right? yeah so I mean the way we you know so a lot of times people ask us oh so are you forcing their clients to use endows and absolutely not right they should again it's about transparency and empowering the client to sure. make decisions right. and we have a lot of like private banks have a lot of products that endowists may not have right endows is not a bank we don't offer leverage for example yeah services I mean, all different the, yeah. services yeah. but if there is a product on the endows platform and they like that product, right. and Endowis is offering it at a better price than anywhere else, yeah. more transparently and more conveniently, then they can consider purchasing through Endowis sure. as a part of their overall holistic portfolio. Right, right, right. So I, I think, again, it always goes back to doing the right thing for the client, right. and eventually that will, that will win. Right, right. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I guess uh, you've got a bunch of, well, I guess there, there's a lot of alternatives, but you just recently had um, a deal with EQT and, you know, maybe talk a little bit about that or that sort of asset class, if mm. you will, and so the emergence as, of it, I guess. Yeah, there's there's a lot know, of, I mean, EQT is a Europe-based sure. um, private equity firm, but we're truly global. Right. They're probably now the third largest in AUM. I think just the other day they around they announced that they closed on their twenty two billion dollar uh twenty two billion euro uh fund right. uh for which is which is really impressive in this market. Sure. But they're they're a super institutional player. Among many things and more more relevant for the Asia context, they um they bought one of the most uh well probably the largest pan Asia private equity player mm. that was Asia homegrown. Right. And and that's a firm called um bearing private equity Asia. Right, right. Um, 
so they've they've merged now right and it's yeah i mean it's great that they have a, a real asia presence as right. a result right. what's happening in the private equity industry and it's taken a little while to catch on is they realize that for individuals and actually for a lot of institutions as well buying and committing to many many closed-ended funds so closed-ended means that i commit capital to a fund i um, as a fund manager i will draw down or call that capital and then as and when i sell firms or get distributions from firms i give that back to you that's right as the as the lp right limited partner of that fund this structure is changing a bit so that I can call all of your capital up front, put all of it to work, yeah. grow that capital in many, many strategies that I might have. There are two types. There's, there's, a, there's like a partners group, which historically has run, ha, has been a platform across many, many fund managers, as well as doing direct deals. And then there's a EQT or KKR or Blackstone where right. they are specifically investing in their own funds mm. and their own deals. Right. Okay. And rolling that capital over and over again on itself. Right. Right. And what this does is for an individual, it actually makes the asset class much more efficient mm. because what oftentimes happen when I'm buying close-ended funds is I need to reserve capital for when that for when the fund is making a call, right? And I call this a, a multiple drag, mm -hmm. right? So the IRR could be very high, sure. From when they call capital and return it, it's the X IRR function on Excel, right? <laughs> or, um, but what you'll find is that the money on money return mm -hmm. is not that high, right? Okay. Not compare, not comparable to full deployment. Mm. And as an asset allocator, I really want to just expose myself to that asset class. And I want full deployment. I don't want to have to reserve a little pocket here and there to ultimately put into that portfolio. So, you know, a large pension fund can do it. They right. might have five people dedicated to private equity mm -hmm. asset allocation. They might have a billion dollars, or at least, de dedicated right. to private equity. Right. Um, asset allocation. And I, I say, even for families, unless I have 500 million or a billion dollars liquid yeah. to be allocating to private equity, I say you have to be very, very careful. Right. Because a lot of the great funds, you're looking at minimum 20, 30, 40 million dollar checks right. for direct allocation sure. alongside the CalPERS and CalSTRS and CPPIB and HKMA and Tomasics of the world. Yeah. Okay, so if I allocate to 10 funds a year, which is not that many, right. that's 200 million. Yeah. Right, 10 funds means I'm trying to allocate to the best, you know, mid-market, large cap, small cap, healthcare, Asia, Europe, right. whatever, Australia, Australia, New Zealand. Like if I do that, I actually have to do it every single year as well. Mm. to be vintage diversified right so in five years i've built up to if it's 200 million dollars a year yeah. i built it to a billion dollars in commitments That's right otherwise you're not even really at the table right why would these i mean it's a free market 
you know, how would these fund managers give you attention? How no, could they service not you? Give you the time of day, right? and so on and, and so, so forth. So, right, so. what's beautiful <laughs> about this movement now yeah. is that there are more ways to get efficient and not terribly expensive mm. personal asset allocation right. into diversified private markets. Right. And that's something in Dallas is is really keen on. And we work with, yes, EQT, um, Oak Tree, KKR, Partners Group, Hamilton Lane, um, and Carlisle, a bunch of others, and, right. and other infrastructure partners like you know, iCapital mm -hmm. um, and, and others in, in the mix as well right. to really open up this, this marketplace. Got it. So it's basically uh, <clears throat> making what used to be massive minimums for, you know, and only for the one percenters to participate is, is an accessibility mm. for everyone to participate. In and, it, right? and, in, and also an inability, even, even if I had the brains to do it, an inability to actually create a good asset allocation in private markets. Mm. So these new vehicles make that much more accessible mm -hmm. for the individual. Right. Yeah. Got and you can, and now you can buy, you know, private equity allocation fully deployed uh, with quarterly liquidity. So mm -hmm. I can take my money out because they're helping to facilitate ins and outs of the funds subject to a gate, but from a hundred thousand US dollars. Sure. Right. Got it. Yeah. Cool. So maybe switching gears a little bit, maybe talking about your sort of personal journey, like, you know, mm. you know, you grew up here in Hong Kong, uh, you know, where, you know, where you went to school, how did you kind of form your entrepreneurial spirit and yeah. all those different things? Maybe, I don't know, maybe your family or, you know, things yeah, like that. I, mean, so. I think, I think Hong Kong is full of entrepreneurs, mm. right? So actually in Hong Kong, working for yourself is, it's kind of an ambition a lot of people have. Right. It, it's not really like the salary man kind of culture. Um, no. Right? Not, right. Not at all. I mean, Hong Kong, much less so than many other places in the world. Um, like everyone at that time, you know, grandparents were more or less refugees from China. Mm. Uh, a lot of people have that yeah. story. Right. Yeah. So Shanghai, um, two generations ago, dad grew up here. Um, was an entrepreneur himself, uh, doing many, many things, uh, working with his father and so on and so forth. Uh, so the idea of working for others was, I wasn't uncomfortable with it. It's right. just, it wasn't like that was the natural path. That was not the long-term play. Well, yeah, right. I mean, yeah. unless it was something really great. And I think I was very lucky in that the roles that I did have working for other people were, were really great and I had great bosses and great experience right. in, in those places. Uh, went to CIS in Hong Kong, so Chinese International oh, School. Right, right, right. Uh, went to boarding school, school called Choate in Connecticut. Oh, you went there. Yeah, okay, and then, I'll tell uh, you a story afterwards. But. Okay, <laughs> and, then, and then went to uh, UPenn for my undergrad. Right, right. Before knowing that I wanted to come back to Asia. Right. That was very clear. Right. To do what? Less clear. And but I think I found a really, I was really lucky to find a really uh, an entry point. Mm. Um, through UBS and the investment bank right. in a small team called the Private Funds Group. Right, okay. Um, and that was a great experience before Grab right. and then marrying sort of that institutional wealth and asset allocation with fintech to, to form and build in Dallas. Mm. Yeah. Right. 
And then, so, you know, what was the, I guess the trigger event was, you know, you saw the market opportunity, but then was there a personal sort of opportunity where you said, you know what, I need to kind of jump into this area, right? Or this was like, you know, I mean, why this idea versus another idea, and then why entrepreneur and not just like, hey, you know, maybe there's mm-hmm. other folks that are doing this that I could join, right? Yeah, I think no one was really doing it the way that, no one was really doing it in a way where I wanted to put my family's money into those firms. Sure. As, as, as a platform. Right. Right. And basically I, I knew, I mean, because of the powers of compounding, that if I did this right, and I actually used the platform a lot, mm-hmm. it could make it a huge impact on, on personal wealth sure. as well. Not, not just on owning the equity of the firm, but actually using the platform myself. Right. And, and it could then do that for a lot of people right. and actually benefit society as a whole. Yes. Right. So, I mean, I think there's a, there's a statistic. We, we, we're saving clients something like 40 million US dollars a year on getting an equivalent allocation elsewhere Mm. to to a lot of these funds. Right. Huge savings um, by using the Endows platform. Mm. Yeah. Right. And then so now what are sort of, I mean, have you had to make pretty significant pivots inside of the business model Mm. or as you were kind of growing this platform? You know, what sort of key... Uh... I think we've, we've managed to find really supportive shareholders along the way. Mm. And by nature, and we're not a high-fee business, we're right. also not a transaction-fee business. Right. So by nature of the business, the only way we can grow is if our clients do well and continuously add money to the platform right. or, or what they've invested in grows. Right. Otherwise... You know, we're not going to grow anywhere. Sure. And and then they have to tell their friends, and their friends start using the platform. We've seen this play out in Singapore very well, and we're starting to see early signs of the same in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, yeah. As well. So that's great. Um, but we have to be very, very patient. Yep. And what's cool is that you know, Endows was actually self-funded for the first four years, mm-hmm. and then we went out to the market and found investors. Um, not only VCs, but actually traditional financial institutions also join our cap table. Mm, right. So, um, you know, Lightspeed is a, is a VC firm that has been backing us over many, many rounds, but also UBS okay. has been backing us over many rounds. Uh, recently, MUFG and Citi mm. also joined our cap table. Oh, right. and, and I think what's great is they, they understand the way this market works and whether or not we're doing well or poorly because they actually see what the they're, inter- they're, what their own books are doing yeah, and what their own clients are doing yeah. and how people might be transitioning to new business models right. and service yeah. models right. uh, like in Dallas. Right. Yeah. So you basically went from like more of the traditional VC route and then started a transition in the rounds in terms of like strategics. And well, things actually, our very first round had the VCs and, and UBS, uh, Singtel, I see. and okay. Samsung joined that round as right. strategic long-term capital. Right. And then later on, like we have, we have a lot of permanent capital, so like Prosys mm-hmm. is on our cap table. Um, Singapore's Economic Development Board Investment, EDBI, sure. is on our cap table. Um, the banks that I mentioned, now a number of families as well. Right. Uh, that are, you know, strategically interested in the space. Right. And um, 
and many others. What, yeah. what are some tips to startup founders that, in terms of like the fundraising? I mean, you guys were really successful and able to raise in this really difficult environment. Right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, 2023, as everyone knows, it was a very difficult year. Um, we managed to raise 30 mil 35 million in primary yeah. in, um, in 2023. And I think what's important is to just be very, I mean, this is, this is hard, but like be very truthful to yourself. Yeah. Um, know what is ecstasy right so 2021 might have been okay, a bit you scared me for a second e <laughs> i was like ecstasy yeah. <laughs> like, might, okay. might have been a bit crazy oh okay, okay. <laughs> no no know what is crazy know what is real yeah right um be realistic be like to yourself or like understanding your, the environment be, or? be realistic to yourself yeah. and to your shareholders sure right right and therefore you'll be able to find the right shareholder uh, shareholder founder or shareholder company match like almost in terms of their risk appetite and their correct right so you know th you know we it looks like we had a really successful fundraise and we did have a really successful fundraise because we found shareholders that understood and believe in what we're trying to do sure and are paying what we think is a fair price for that right right um, but we got a lot of uh, we got a lot of no's as well, sure. um, but that was totally fine because the risk return appetite of those potential investors was very different from what the company was trying to achieve. Sure. So, it, so it's not so much about, you know, just because these 50 investors say no, right. doesn't mean that there is no investor out there for you. That's right. You need to, you know, it's a lot like the way we advise clients. You need to match your asset allocation to your goal. Mm -hmm. And we are a certain type of company yep. in the fintech world. Right. And if you put us next to another fintech, we could both be considered fintechs, mm -hmm. but be completely different. Right. So even like a fintech focused fund may not be appropriate for us. Right because I think the risk return profile and the sustainability, longevity, and maybe the macro and everything else of what Endowis is trying to do, not only for ourselves and our shareholders and clients, but for the industry, is very different from what another FinTech might be trying right, to do. Right, right, yeah. yeah. The problem to solve and the business model. Correct, and the know, amount of time it will take to do it properly. Right. And to not take shortcuts to right. get there, because if you take shortcuts, you may actually muddy your value proposition. That's right. That's right. So we're very principled. We are generally more patient. I think people in general are very impatient these days. We're generally more patient than a lot of the industry that we're operating in. Right. Or some people say boring. I mean, you could say boring too. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're generally more boring. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're not doing the next like Web3, DeFi, you know, Bitcoin, whatever. No, no, we're not. I mean, we we understand the attractiveness in that space. Yeah. Uh, but it's not our space. Sure. Yeah. 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 So. And then, so you know, what other what other startup type uh, scenarios that you'd had to gone through that maybe some of the founders would experience? Let's say team management. I mean, as far as like, you know, how do you pivot your business model and so on and so forth? I mean, what what are maybe like two to three different learnings that you've had inside of that? 
I mean, I think we are really flat, and we continue to be really flat right. as, a, as, an, as a firm. Um, until you really feel pain, mm. don't hire is the principle we have. Right. Um, and like how much pain? <laughs> like like significant like, significant like, amount of pain. Like I think working like, to like whatever midnight every yeah, yeah. I mean working at an unsustainable rate. Sure. Right. Working at an unsustainable rate and right. losing business because of it. Mm, right. Right. Um, I think that is an you know I think that we don't hire for luxury. Right. right. Ever. Right. I think what happened with a lot of young companies in the last few years that were heavily funded yep. is they end up with these layers on layers of people sure. and these, you know, different titles, like many chief of staffs and sure. many like uh, middle management layers and all that. And it, it's a, a bit, it's not great because it's not that these people are bad. It's just that they were hired in maybe a time of exuberance yep. and may not be totally necessary for the business at its scale right so i mean literally i i, I think in dallas still today has like maybe two layers right uh, but even all the managers and all the leadership we constantly say you are all and we are all including me and sam we're all individual contributors right 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 we're all meant to contribute ideas build sell execute right and if you're not doing that at this scale we have about 150 people now yeah but if you're not doing this at, at this at this scale and and i think at this scale you're leading by example yeah much more so than giving you know direction sure uh we don't have the luxury of just giving direction then you're not doing your job right, right. um at this scale right so different things for different times i i don't think we've really gotten I don't think we've had those like many, many stages of management and, and, right. and different styles and things like that. So I think it's, it's just knowing that humbly, like very humbly knowing that we're still small. Sure. And as a result, the team works, I think, much better together right. without those layers. Right. I mean, anyone in the firm knows they can contact me yeah. directly. Right. Like anybody. Right. And if they don't feel that way, I mean, to me, that's my failure. Mm. Yeah. Got it. Mm. What's, um, so kind of taking a look at it, I mean, asset management space, what, what's the future look like? You know, where, where are we headed in terms of this area, in terms of products and geographies, sectors, propositions, like alternative investments? I mean, what are sort of like the key trends that you see in the next, you know, two, three years or so? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the industry is definitely going more direct to consumer, right? And consumers are more knowledgeable. Will, will become more and more knowledgeable in their choices, right? I don't think we're ever going to get rid of like very speculative stuff. I mean, humans, mm. I think, love to speculate. That's sure. a that's a given, right? So we're never going to get rid of that. We're never going to get rid of day trading and trading of stuff with you know, essentially no tangible value right. and, and things like that. So that's all going to keep on running as is. I think the, you know, there is a bit of a scale game in mm -hmm. asset management. Right. So, but it, it keeps on fluctuating, right? When they get too big, it may also be hard for them to do something special. Yep. 
and then some small guys appear and they start to have a good track record and then right. but then they maybe also grow too big sure and then they lose their edge and, and all of that so this fluctuation will keep on happening i mean i think low cost is definitely here to stay mm -hmm. increased access to asset classes right. like this private equity private credit private you know hedge funds etc is definitely only going one direction that's sure. that's a no-brainer and of course in wealth management we think that conflict-free fee only which means that the client only pays the platform directly right and the, and the platform cannot earn from anybody else will and I, I mean will it takes it's a big long will will <laughs> lead to better outcomes right for clients yeah it's not that it may lead to better outcomes it will lead yeah. to better outcomes anytime you're handing back money to the client yeah and you're and you're also aligned to serve the client right not to try and generate as much revenue from the client as possible in the shortest amount of time right that will lead to better outcomes for clients yep and the industry will transition to that i right. think i think there was a stat recently that switzerland is already over 30 percent is that right okay, in this, right, in right. this model right. and the ria business in the u.s is the one of the fastest growing sectors of financial services right. right so i i think it, it's all going to happen mm. i don't know how long it will take right i think regulation will also create speed up that change sure. eventually right. um and hopefully the industry is much more client-centric yep. which it was meant to be from the get-go right yeah yeah so like 500 years from now you'll be like oh remember that time people could earn commissions on selling funds <laughs> that was ridiculous <laughs> you know? so, right. um but yeah uh i yeah so so that's uh, that's yeah. kind of my my longer term got vision it, got it. cool um yeah i mean it's it's been fantastic catching up with you i mean it, no, you know, thanks so yeah, much it's for, like a really, so really good me. discussion. And, uh, you know, continued success to you, the team, to Sam and the rest of the gang over there. Um, and welcome back to Hong Kong, even though you've been here for about a year already. <laughs> thank, so. thank you. Good to see you thanks, <laughs> thanks a lot. A lot. Thanks Appreciate a lot. it. Yeah. Yeah.